You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. We're spending a couple weeks looking at this one verse. Um, Because it's a simple one, it's a familiar one, and one of the things that I found about familiar passages of Scripture uh, is that because they are familiar, we don't pay attention to them. Uh, we don't sit and dwell upon them often. We, they don't have the same resonance to us as they ought to because of the depth of reality uh, of what is in them. Uh, and so I don't want us to do that with this. I want us to spend a little bit of time uh, chewing into what it is uh, that God requires of us. Um, if you remember last week, we took a look at the first part of this to do justice. But this is what he says in Micah chapter 6, starting in in verse 8. He says, He, God, has told you, O man, that is, all men, all y'all, in other words, what is good. God has told us what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. I love this time of year. I love walking outside and getting the the fresh uh, cold snap of the air against my face. I love walking through the woods uh, in moose season and feeling the crunch of the ground. I love waking up in the morning and seeing that thin layer of ice, although this past week that thin layer of ice became a really thick layer of ice really, really quickly. Um, uh, But I, I love moose season. I love my kids. They're all distinct and different. Uh, and I love each one of them uh, differently uh, based upon their personality and who God has wired them up to be. Uh, I love moose shank steaks. If you've ever had those before, it's the four-part part of the moose leg. It's terrible if you try to clean it up to grind it or anything like that. But if you freeze it and slice it up into slabs and slow cook it, they're absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, I love soft jazz. Uh, I love power cars. Um, I sort of love football occasionally. Uh, you know, I love the way that my bed feels first thing in the morning when you wake up and you just, you know, everything else is cold and you don't want to get out of it, right? And I love that first stretch. Anybody else love the love the first stretch of the morning? I have a dog that I love that likes to come and interrupt this. And like as soon as I start that first stretch, the dog comes right and jumps in and I'm just like, what are you doing, right? I love all of these things. And love is a term that we use all the time, and it means all kinds of different stuff because I don't love any of those things the same way, right? I love ice cream, and I love my wife. And if I love both of those the same, something's wrong, right? But we just have one word. We just love. That's all that, we, that's all that we've got. Right, And so we have uh, words in society or phrases in society uh, that are phrases like love is love and you can't help who you love and uh, we ought to be more loving. And my answer, my question to all of those statements into society is what do you mean? Because what you mean about that when you're saying you know, we should love one another Should I love one another the same way that I love coffee? 
Or should I love one another the same way as I am loving my spouse? They're all very different. C.S. Lewis wrote an entire book on the subject of love called The Four Loves. He took the four Greek words uh, that can just simply be translated as love, but each one of those words is directed to something that is very different for what the, uh, the, the love is actually for. The first of those is storge. That word literally uh, means love, but it is love in the sense of affection. It is like animals, our love for animals. Uh, it is also like the, um, as, as he words it, he says it lives in a humble private things as soft slippers, old clothes, good jokes, the thump of a sleeping dog's tail on the kitchen floor, and the sound of your grandmother's sewing machine. It is those affections that we feel towards those things that we define in a, I love that, right? I I love, you know, when you say, I love this time of year, I love the rain, or I love the sound of uh, rain hitting on a tin roof. Those kind of things are an affection that we feel towards those kind of things. Sometimes that affection uh, is, uh, I, you know, you you say like, yeah, I love my coworkers. Well, there is an affection. There's a there's a you enjoy their company. You enjoy the surrounding nature of it. But sometimes that affection moves uh, into a different phase of what is called phileo love. Uh, it is the term of friendship. This is why Philadelphia got its name, the city of brotherly love, although anybody that's ever lived there probably would disagree with that as a, as a statement of that town. Friendship, though, was considered to be one of the highest types of love. Deep and abiding friendship. Not just a, I like this person and I am friendly with this person, but this is my friend. We are together in this. In the modern world, uh, we are losing a sense of familiar. We are more uh, embracing the idea of affection, this idea that I like these individuals, rather than a friend kind of bonding together uh, relationship. We develop a kinship over things that are common, uh, and this camaraderie makes friendship all the more wanted. Friendship must be about something, is what C.S. Lewis said. Even if we are only uh, using enthusiasm for dominoes or an affinity for white mice. That was his, he, he had funny illustrations as he described those things. But friendships uh, are about developing a closeness with an individual that is, this is my friend. And to say, this is my friend, is not to just simply say, well, I enjoy this person, but it is to actually say, I love this person. The third type of love uh, that is defined in the Greek is eros. It is where we get the the, uh, English word erotic. Anybody want to guess where that one comes from? All the kids are out of the room, right? This is sexual love. This is that physical attraction kind of love. This is the, uh, not only do I emotionally love this person, but I want to actually love them with my body. I want to love them with my lips. I want to love them with my eyes. And this is, uh, uh, in, in our society, is celebrated, but it's celebrated in a sense that is non-committal. 
Uh, it is celebrated in a sense that is not the true beauty of it because if we're to be loved, there is actual connection. There is a, a sense of oneness, togetherness in the picture. This is why when God made man and woman, His first declaration of them was that they would be one flesh. And as we were joking, as we were cutting up a moose this past week, and uh, and you know talking about you know the the parts as they're all scattered about, and somebody was talking about, well, I wonder if this would hurt or whatever, and I was like, no, it's not one thing anymore. It's it's carnage at this point, right? And this is the the picture of eros love that is not love, where it is actually an erotic form of just attraction that manifests itself in a way that is not actually loving. And yet God is the one that invented it, and He invented it to be good forever. But then the final kind of Greek love that is described there is what is known as agape. Uh, The old, uh, like King James Version, translated that word as charity. Uh, Most of our modern translations translate that as love. But it was this unconditional giving of love. It is the word that is always used in the New Testament to describe God's kind of love, Jesus' kind of love. And in fact, as He describes that we are to love one another, He links our love for one another in the same way that God loves us. And in our response to God, as we are called to love Him, we're not called to manifest love out of nothing in ourselves to then give back to God. Our love for Him is a response to the fact that He loved us first. And so we respond in this kind of love modeled after God, and we are called to give that kind of unconditional love to one another. This picture of love, as in unconditional love, uh, is one of the hardest forms of love to actually do in all life. It is easy to love the things that are lovely to us, right? The, the things that we like. When we like the rain, or we like the ice cream, or we like the, the uh, medium rare cooked perfect steak, right? We love those things. They're giving things to us. It's very easy for us to embrace those kind of things. But when it comes to the obstinate child, How do we do unconditional love? When it comes to the mean-spirited family member, how do we do unconditional love? When it comes to the spouse that is speaking things harshly against us, what does it mean for us to love our neighbor in a God kind of way? And our neighbor, in in that instance, being our spouse, how do we love them that way? How do we love that coworker that's just making our job harder? How do we love that political figure that is, stands in complete and total opposition to everything that we adhere to? It's not easy to do agape kind of love. Now, this everything we've described so far is all New Testament pictures of love. And there's word plays on this all throughout the New Testament. But one of the pictures of love that I think is most profound for us that we miss oftentimes is actually an Old Testament word, a Hebrew word that is used in the passage that we're going to look at today. Last week we took a look at the first part where he tells us to do justice. And basically if we were to summarize that is to say we want to treat everyone equally... Because God treated us 
justly. We want to do justice into the world because God enacted justice on our behalf. And so we as followers of Him want to do that the same way. But the second thing that he says, what does God require of you? He says to do justice, and depending on what your translation uh, translates it as, it might say something like to love mercy, or it might say to love kindness. And in a very, very literal sense... Uh, what it is saying is to love, love. To love, love. The word that uh, Micah uses um, to describe this thing that he's calling us to, to tell us that we ought to love one another, uh, is the, the Hebrew word chesed. Kind of like say, he said, but you got to throw a guttural into it. Chesed. And it's an incredibly challenging word for biblical translators to translate. There's no direct word-for-word translation for it. We can't just take one word and say, like, this word means cat, and we're just going to translate it as cat. It is chesed. It's kind of actually similar to the, uh, the difficulty that they have when they use the word shalom. Anybody, when we say the word shalom, what does that, anybody know what that means? Peace, right? But it means so much more than peace. Shalom means may all that God intends good for you happen to you. That's peace. May everything that is right in the world work the way that it's supposed to on your behalf. In other words, peace to you. May it all work out right for you. That's a much significant and heavier statement than just peace, right? And chesed is the same way. Some, uh, sometimes, even in the same translation, the translators would translate it as mercy. Sometimes they would translate it as kindness. Sometimes they would translate it as loving kindness, which I think is a, a weightier way of even saying that. The picture of Hesed is this nature uh, that is always pointed to in the very character of God defining that. And if we are to love Hesed, which is the word, so the, the word love in that passage is, the, is the, the affection paying attention to this, I love this thing, just encapsulating the thing as itself. I love this thing, and the thing itself is this deep and profound love if we're going to love the thing, we probably ought to understand it, right? That's how, that's how deep relationships work. Uh, weekend flings. Anybody ever been to you know, Christian summer camp, right? You show up on Monday, you've got to pick out your girlfriend by, by Wednesday, and by Friday your heart's broken, right? That's the way that that works, right? Because there's no, there's no depth involved in any of that kind of stuff, right? But for us to love, we have to understand, we have to know. And one of the absolute beautiful things of marriage, I think one of the reasons why uh, the Apostle Paul describes marriage as a picture of Christ in the church, is that you actually know your spouse better the longer that you're with them. And if God is infinite and we are His bride, there will always be new things for us to know of our God. It's an incredible picture of what eternity is going to We're never going to get bored of God. Like every day we're going to be like, whoa, look, check that out, that's so incredible, right? So as we think about this understanding of Hesed, we have to think back to the nature of what it is that God said when He exhibited what we might call mercy or kindness.
kindness or loving kindness. God has always been covenantal. It's always been the way that God has worked. From from the very beginning, when uh, God made the earth, He set upon the earth man and woman, and He set upon them rules for their good. Right? Till the earth. Subdue it. Enjoy. Be fruitful and multiply. Do these things and it will, be, it will go well for you. There's one thing don't do. Right? Don't eat from the tree in the knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a covenantal statement. It's, a, it's an agreement. I'm going to provide all of this stuff for you. Walk in this way. Do this. Right? Even after the fall, when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, God made a covenantal statement even in the consequences of sin when He uh, told the serpent that, this, that His seed would strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but that seed, singular, would crush the head of the serpent, this kind of weird picture. And ultimately, it was from the very beginning of the Bible painting a picture for us for what Jesus was going to do. It was a covenantal statement. God made a covenant with Noah afterwards. It says, you will be my people. You'll carry on the, the lineage of what I intended for mankind to be. God puts them and provides everything for them and sets a rainbow in the sky afterwards to promise that He's never going to destroy man in the same way by flood off the earth. He makes a covenant promise with him. And then, of course, he brings Abraham into the picture and he makes a covenant with him where he says, you will be my people, I will be your God. I will be known by your name. That is an incredible thing that the God of the universe actually took on the name of a man. He became known as the God of Abraham and covenanted himself together. When we think of covenants, we kind of have a hard time understanding those, really, in a sense. The best picture that we have of those is kind of like contracts, right? All the teachers in the room, at some point in time, the school district hands you a contract and says, you're going to work this certain amount of time with this amount of money, and you get this pay, and all these kind of things. And you sign on the dotted line, and the only way out of that contract is to break that contract, and then there's legal consequences that are involved in that, right? There's not necessarily maybe an emotional bend to this, but it is contractual. It's You're fixed in it. A covenant was intended to be something that was even deeper than that. It was a binding together, but not just contractually, but emotionally as well. That when you think of uh, covenanting together, really the only picture that we have of it in modern day society actually is marriage. That when you step into a marriage relationship, you are covenanting together. There is legal binding. You do sign a document. If you break the terms of the contract, there are consequences that play out to that. But it's not just you entering into a business agreement with another human being and being like, hey, you know what, I think it would be financially beneficial for us to create half, you know, uh, two halves of ourselves into one little bitty minion and maybe they'll take care of us when we get old. Right? That's not the way that... That's not, that's not what... No, nobody steps into marriage and being like, you know what, I think this should be the best financial move for us, right? That's not what people do. They say, you're mine. I'm yours. We're together in this. So Chris, what does this have to do with chesed? Well, the best definition that I have found of defining this word is that uh, chesed is the uh, covenantal desire, action, covenantal action to seek the true good of another. The, the covenantal decision 
to seek the true good. You could almost say to seek the shalom of another. It's this this act of, you know, we can simplify that as to say kindness, right? If you're kind to somebody, you're you're wanting to do something nice for them, right? To do something good for them. Think about the last time that somebody was kind to you. Uh, They just, you know, they smiled at you. They said a kind word. Maybe they did a favor for you or they helped you out with a project, right? They were seeking your good. They thought they're going to enjoy this smile. They're going to enjoy this word of encouragement. They're going to enjoy this gift. They're going to enjoy this help, right? They're going to enjoy the fact that I stepped back and said, no, 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 you have the last cup of coffee or whatever it was. It was an act of kindness and it was a decision that they made. But those things are all really fleeting, right? Those are just kind of, you know, uh, we can make a decision to live as people that are generally kind, thoughtful individuals. We probably all know people that are just like, they're so thoughtful and they're so kind, they just make you sick, right? You know, they're just, that's just the way that they are. It's just the kind of the way that they flow through life. And Hesed takes a, a step beyond this. It's a, it's a picture not just of, I'm intending to be nice to you, But it is actually, I am covenanting. So think marriage. To this action to seek your true good. And we go, I don't know that I see that in society. I mean, even even the people that love me the most, do I really even see that kind of action? This this, uh, intentional covenanting together, decision-making action. I'm binding myself to seek out your true good. But this is exactly what He's telling us to love. To love this kind of love. This radical, different from everything else kind of love. Now the Bible, when it teaches us principles, when it teaches us ideas, when it teaches us things, has a way of not teaching us all of it at once. In theological terms, we call this progressive revelation. In other words, from page one of the Bible, not all of the biblical truths exist in their full form on page one. Right? You have to walk through the ages with the, uh, with the people of Israel and see the story and hear the messages and listen to what the prophets say. And then you encounter Jesus and you encounter the apostles and they begin to teach and unpack all of these kind of things. And so every time this, uh, you turn the page, it's that it's taking this foundation of the first time, the, what we call the rule of first mention, the first time that some biblical principle is mentioned, and it adds on to it and adds on to it, not changing it, but actually fleshing it out for us. It's, it really is more like a, a flashlight that you can turn the knob and it just gets brighter and brighter and brighter. The object doesn't change. It's what we can actually see of it that changes. And so, when we think of things like God's mercy, when we think of the way in which God is merciful, a lot of times when we think of the Old Testament and we think of the way that God is merciful towards people, we see God being merciful towards the righteous, right? 
when we see a, a king of Israel who is doing good and doing right and following what he, you know, what he's supposed to do, God blesses, and there's that kind of thing. And then when we see kings that are walking in disobedience, we don't see God being merciful. We actually see God being just and bringing judgment. And so sometimes that's confusing for us. We're like, wait a second, I thought God was merciful. Why is God being, uh, you know, why is God bringing judgment in this situation? And it's because it all goes back to this principle of what does the covenanting look like? When God said, you will be my people and I will be your God, He lays out for them very specifically, this is what the, the, you are to be about. This is what you are to do. Last week we took a look when we were looking at Judgment. we took a look at the laws that he had. And most of them, remember he said they were laws of don'ts, right? Don't uh, take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't have other idols. Don't worship uh, other gods. Don't do these kind of things. And then don't kill your neighbor. Don't steal his sheep. Don't, you know, don't murder your, uh, your, your neighbor. Don't, uh, don't have an affair on your wife. Don't do all these kind of things. And then Jesus stepped in and said, that's a lot of don'ts. Let me give you two do's and it answers all of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we ask the question, okay, so how does mercy, how does God's covenant play out in this? And God says, listen, all of your good I've laid out for you. I've set up everything there is for you. I've set up the garden. I've set up the way in which society should work. I've set up the way that these things should work. And I am telling you to walk in these ways. And one thing that progressive revelation has told us is that we've never figured it out. We've never figured out how to walk in His ways. We've never figured out how to do good. When there was only one don't. One. Don't eat from the tree. Eat from everything else. Don't eat from the one tree. We were like, give me it. I want to go right there. And every day since then, the more and more progressive revelation in my life that happens is I realize every single day just how jacked up my heart and your heart is. So how does mercy play out in this? Well, this picture of Hesed, remember we said it is the covenanting decision or action to seek the true good of another. And that's the picture that we see throughout the whole Old Testament. God covenants Himself to seek out the good and He calls the nation of Israel, He calls the people of Israel, He calls all the Jews to say, follow Me and see how good I can be to you. See, see how your fields flaw, or prosper. See how all your battles are won. See how your kingdom grows. See how everything works. Right? I'm seeking the true good of you. And they reject and reject and reject and reject and reject. And so we're left with a problem. It doesn't seem like it works. It doesn't seem like this kind of chesed, this kind of kindness is actually working in the world. But then we get to the New Testament. For us, there's images of this throughout the Old Testament, but it becomes absolutely surgically clear for us in the New Testament. That Jesus walks upon this earth, the God of creation, the one who spoke the rings of Saturn into existence, the one that Scripture says, by him all things were made, and through him, or without him, nothing was made, and in him all things hold together, right? That's Jesus. 
And he's born in backwoods Bethlehem, thrown into a food trough, given a manual labor job for 30 years of his life, walks and, uh, and tries to love people, point people to the kingdom of God. He's arrested, brutally murdered, and thrown into a grave. And then, of course, we have the resurrection, right? He comes back to life and power and transformation. But how does that play into God's mercy? How does that show us chesed? Jesus get changed the meaning of the word. He changed the meaning of what chesed truly means. Because up until this point, the understanding was that this chesed, this kindness, this mercy of God, was the covenanting decision to seek the true good of another. And what Jesus revealed to us is that all of the others weren't just others. They were actually all enemies. And so Hesed changed to the covenantal decision, the covenantal action to seek the true good of an enemy. And this is why the New Testament writers could say of God, this is how we know that he loves or that uh, that he loves us. And while we were yet sinners, literally while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. He sought our true good, your true good. When you could care less about him, how easy is it to love people that love us back and that are easy to love and that are comfortable and that are affectionate and that we have this eros or we have this friendship with, right? To understand and move those kind of... How easy are those things? But when it is somebody that is actually our enemy, how do we actually love them that way? Dear friend, the best way that I can tell you how to love your enemy is to realize that God loved you. And if you don't understand just how much of an enemy you were of God, you don't actually know the nature of your own sin. See, again, we we don't think of sin uh, as we read Scripture just as a, a sense of naughtiness, right? Like, sin is not just something that just sends you to the principal office or gets you in trouble with your boss. Sin is looking into the face of your Creator, the One whose image you bear, and looking at Him and saying, I hate you. It's actually the image of hell that Jesus describes that's so brutal. Oftentimes we, we think of, you know, sometimes when people think of hell uh, and Christianity and God's love and mercy and all, they have this kind of hard time because how can a good God send nice people to hell forever? Right? They only send 80 years. How do they send them for hell forever? The picture that Jesus paints of hell is, is brutal. Jesus uses this term where He says that the, the, uh, it's His favorite description of hell. He says, cast this, this individual into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've probably heard me talk about this before. That picture of outer darkness means utter. if God is light and in Him there is no darkness of all, there's utter and complete separation from God. We in our lifetime have never experienced that. And that's what hell is the picture of. Utter and complete separation from God. Then he uses where there is weeping, and it's this Greek word that describes uh, agony, suffering, pain. 
The deep, you know, there, there's people that cry, there's people that ugly cry, and then there's people that weep, and that is a very distinctly different pain that they are experiencing. And I always thought that the gnashing of teeth was the same as just kind of, you know, uh, being angry and being mad, uh, weeping, gnashing of teeth, kind of same thing. But that's not it. That, the Greek word that is used for gnashing of teeth is always, only, ever used for rage. The picture that Jesus paints is that this individual, at their death, their true self towards God is exposed. And with a closed fist and a grinding jaw for all eternity, they spend it in agony, shaking that fist at God and saying, God, I hate you for all eternity. See, hell is actually just the eternal trajectory of the human soul at death. It's just saying, you might have been seemed to be nice, but you were made for one purpose, to love God and reflect Him into the world. The world needs to know God's love, and we warp it and mess it up and, and jack it up all over the place. And the sooner that we come to grips with the reality that that's what we are apart from Christ the sooner we can actually understand God's love for us. That God is love is no small thing. It's that the God of this universe looked at me and looked at you when we were not lovable by His standards. The standards that we were made for. We weren't lovable by those standards. And yet He loved us anyways. And He loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son into this world to substitute His perfect righteous life for yours and for mine. And as we embrace that in faith, as we trust Jesus, that His goodness is enough to pay for all of my rebellion as I embrace that and feel the transformation that is forgiveness, regeneration, a change of life where I'm brought from death to life, there's a transformation that takes place in the human heart that causes us to go, if God so loved me, not only do I want to love Him that way, but I want to love others the way that He has loved me. And this is why nearly a thousand years, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, before His death, burial, and resurrection, as the prophet Micah was speaking to the nation of Israel, calling them to truth, he says, you know what God has told you is good. What does He require of you? That you do justice, that you live equitably with people, whether they're rich or poor, uh, native-born or not native-born, whether they like the king or hate the king, whatever they are, treat people fairly. And then secondly, love, love. Love this kind of kindness. Meaning, as you think about the fact that God has loved you, you should love that. I mean, really love that. Because in loving God's love, we are actually loving Him. We're not just loving the idea of Him, we're loving the reality of what He has loved us. 
if we, if we, uh, you know, if we don't get that, if we don't understand that, it's like the idea of somebody that, you know, your grandma when she comes up to you and she just wraps her arms around you in, in love and just squeezes you so tight and you don't reciprocate. You just stand there like ice. And you're just thinking, when is she going to let go? That's the response of not loving Chesed. To not love the fact that He loves, that we, it, it's not that we start it. We bring something. We, we do something that then warrants God's love for us. It's that He radically loves us. And we're called to love that. And if we're called to love that, then we're called to respond to that into the rest of this world. And if God has have shown mercy on us, kindness on us, loving kindness on us, we ought to show it to one another. So I want you to think for a moment, first and foremost, how has God loved you this way? What does it look like for the fact that God incarnate loves you when you were His enemy? And then secondly, I want you to think about this in a very practical sense. What does it mean to love in such a way where you are making a conscious decision to seek the true good of others? They may not appreciate it. They may not receive it. They may not love back. That wasn't the command. Love them this way so long as they receive it and it changes them. No, no, no. God doesn't love us that way. He loves us all the way up until the point of our death. And we spend the rest of eternity shaking our fist at Him. In this reality, we are called to love loving kindness. And I think it's a challenge that we face as Christians today is that I don't necessarily know that we're known as loving, kind people. If you just ask the average person walking the streets of the United States, how would you describe a Christian? Loving kindness. Probably isn't at the top of the list. It's probably they're political. Or they're angry. Or something else. We said last week uh, that the challenge of preaching is that sometimes we say the same thing again and again and again and again. And I'm not coming up with anything new. I'm just saying the same thing that they've been saying for the last several thousand years. He has told you, insert your name, what is good. What's your life supposed to look like? What kind of character are you supposed to have? Who are you supposed to be? Love, loving kindness. To love it, you've got to understand that God loved you. And what does that entail? Then there should be just a natural byproduct of that. That as you understand that God has loved you with this kind of intentional seeking your true good, we ought to love one another. I think I mentioned here not too long ago, I had a friend that I was praying for that 
uh, was in ICU with COVID and praying that God would do a miracle, spare his life. He was in his late 50s, pretty healthy guy, he's a seminary friend of mine. And God chose not to. He didn't, didn't pull through. He didn't make it. It was one of those where I was just like, God, I've been praying. What? Why, why weren't you merciful in this situation? God reminded me that God answers every one of our prayers exactly how we would have prayed them if we knew what He did. That there's a truth to the nature of God that we just don't understand. That He's not hiding things from us. Like in, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 8, that passage, what I, you know, I call cup of coffee cup theology, right? It looks nice on a coffee cup. God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Usually it just gets cut off. God works all things together for the good. And everybody's like, well, this ain't good, so that ain't true, right? Well, there's a little bit more. God works all things together for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, right? But right in the context of that, just a little bit past that, that all things work together for the good is in the context of for we are being led like sheep to the slaughter every day. But sometimes those really hard things, God is working for your good. Why? Because of His said for you. He is seeking your true good. That's His promise. This morning, there's a high probability that some of you have never actually experienced that for yourself. Like you, you've heard of God, you've heard of Jesus, you didn't actually know that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. And so the one thing that I would plead with you is don't turn a deaf ear to the Holy Spirit this morning. If, he's, uh, if, if there's something that is moving in your heart, calling you to hear differently, experience this differently, see your sin differently than you have, don't wallow in self-hatred. Oh, look at how terrible I am. In that burden, turn to Jesus. And as we've already heard uh, from a number of people this morning, that there are burdens that we're bearing, bearing because of the sorrows that others have cast upon us. Seek their true shalom. Seek their true good. Seek their chesed. That you would experience, or that they would experience through you, God's loving kindness. And if there's one thing that we need to do, it is to love God's loving kindness. Let's pray. God, we are so incredibly thankful for Your chesed. For the fact that You covenanted to love us when we were unlovable. That You knew Adam was going to take from that tree. And You knew every rotten thing we would ever think or do. While we were yet sinners, before the foundation of the earth, You set in motion that Jesus would die for our sins. And so God, this morning, I pray if there's some that are here today that have never put their faith in You, they've never uh, trusted in You, they've never actually become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, 
trusting in your death, burial, and resurrection, repenting of their sin and turning to you. I pray that this would be the day of salvation for them, that Holy Spirit, you would work in a uh, powerful way in their life. And God, for those of us who have been walking with you, I pray, God, that you would remind us of your loving kindness towards us so that we can have that same kind of love, that same kind of mercy, that same kind of kindness in all aspects of our life, that that would be a defining quality of us. Not that we would just be a just people, but that we would be a loving, kind people. God, we are so thankful for Jesus. We thank You for this opportunity to be in Your Word together. God, I pray for our time together in fellowship that it would be enriching as we talk of the fun things that we've done this week and the things that we have coming up this week. Also, God, that our conversations would turn to Your goodness in our lives. We love You. It's Your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.